This is episode 93 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, A Guide to Workplace Humor. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I'm really thrilled to welcome a new guest to the show. I ran across Barbara Plester when I was uh, researching humor in the workplace, which, as my listeners know, is a a topic that I like to talk about because I think it's really complicated and important. And Barbara is uh, has written a book called Laugh Out Loud, the user's, A User's Guide to Workplace Humor, as well as another research book about humor in the workplace. I'll introduce her. She's currently senior lecturer in the Department of Management and International Business at the University of Auckland. Her research explores the relationship between humor and organizational culture, and she has extensive research projects investigating organizational humor, fun, and play. Her current research project examines when fun turns foul and explores sexual harassment, bullying, and toxic outcomes that can occur at, quote, fun work events. Barbara tries to be friendly, uh, cheerful, enthusiastic, and optimistic to maintain her own happiness and well-being. Wonderful bio. So welcome to the show, Barbara. Thanks, Jennifer. That was a lovely intro and nice to be here. All right. Now, I had the opportunity to read your book. Thank you so much for that. I really enjoyed it and found it to be really practical and very well organized. I recommend it to uh, people who are interested in workplace humor, but especially managers. Now, it's not at all anti-humor. I'd say it's even fairly pro-humor, but I would describe it as cautionary. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about your research and what led you in that direction. Sure. Well, the book was co-written with an emeritus professor, Kurt Inkson, and he really enjoys the humor work that I do. So when you say it's well organized, we can probably thank Kurt for that because he's um, really good at pulling a book together. He's written several. So I was really lucky to work with him. So that's that's the first thing. Both of us have a lively sense of humor. We need our humor at work and we enjoy it. But we're really aware that in the modern workplace, humor can go horribly wrong. So when you call it cautionary, definitely there's a cautionary note there. My research, and I'm the field researcher throughout the book, I've gone and I've seen and been involved with lots and lots of different situations. And some of that has just been totally wonderful humor where everyone's had a good time. There's been a good feeling and lots of laughter. On the other hand, I've also seen when the humor goes wrong and people have got hurt, upset, outraged, and it's even led to um, disciplinary action in the workplace. And in some extreme cases, people either leaving an organization or losing their job. So, yes, it was definitely written with a, a cautionary note in mind to help people navigate humor because it is one of the great unnavigated terrains of work. But also we're not anti-humor. You've picked that up. We 
see the need for it and we're very enthusiastic about humour, but the workplace context is quite special. And our feeling with the book was you have to get this right or you can get into lots of difficult situations. Yeah, I think that's right. I would describe your approach to it as be wise, right? Don't be careless with your humor. And I think that that's really great advice. I'm researching humor for a different project. And I'm glad that you talked in the book about why things are funny, which is what I'm getting into mm-hmm. on my side, because humor is so strange and subtle and and why we're often so close to tears at the same time we're laughing. It's, it's just a weird, w- weird phenomenon. But one of the things that you talked about is incongruity as a key point of humor. And I thought that was really interesting. Sometimes in the United States, we talk about the surprise element of humor. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's it's one of the threads of humor. So there's three sort of theoretical explanations for why we laugh. And incongruity is one of them. And it's a big one. Some would argue that incongruity is in all humor. There's a lot of arguments about that. But what incongruity means is that there is that element of surprise that you talk about. So something unexpected happens. When I'm talking about this, perhaps with my students, um, to exemplify it, I say to them, if I'm teaching my class, and I teach in a big auditorium with maybe 200 students there, if I'm teaching and talking about something serious and a dog walks into the lecture theater and walks past me, everybody will laugh. Now, a dog isn't inherently funny. Even a dog in a lecture theater isn't especially funny, but it's the surprise. This dog has walked through our lecture, so people will laugh. And that's the incongruity factor at work, that surprise. It's also how jokes work. When you get a canned joke, three people walk into a bar kind of joke in a setup. Cognitively, you're taken in a direction. And then at the end, you're switched cognitively to the punchline of the joke, which is unexpected. And it's that combination of cleverness and surprise that makes you laugh in a joke. So incongruity is a big factor in humor, and it's it's an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I want to uh, talk about it a little bit more because I think it also can explain why a joke might be funny to one person and not so funny to somebody else. So I want to take one out of the book. Um, I hope I don't wreck your joke here. So (laughs) Jock walks into a Glasgow bar holding a crocodile on a leash and he addresses the barman and he says, do you serve Catholics? And the barman says, well, yes, of course we do. And so Jock says, in that case, a whiskey for me and a Catholic for the crocodile. Yeah. I like that joke a lot. And I was thinking about what makes it work. And, you know, the, it's sort of, for me, the image of a Catholic being brought out and then served to this crocodile is kind of inherently funny. But I was thinking, for me, if the joke was changed so that instead the man said, do you serve women here? And the barman said, yes, of course we do. And then the man said, okay, a whiskey for me and a woman for my crocodile. You know, I'm not sure I would find that quite so funny. So it was a bit eye-opening for me that, oh, yeah, serve a Catholic, no problem. But if it's a woman, (laughs) wait a minute. (laughs) There's a few effects um, at play here. Uh, just in the interest of transparency here, I was brought up in Catholic schools. So, so um, and, and that's one of the effects. Sometimes in humor, you can make the joke about a group if you are a member of the group. 
Mm. If you're a woman, you may be able to make a joke about women. Um, If you're a Catholic, you may be able to get away with making a Catholic joke. Mm. Um, But if you're not of that group, um, you're in risky territory because it can then become what is called a targeted joke. Now, we've both enjoyed the Catholic crocodile joke. And and as a Catholic school uh, graduate, I especially enjoyed it. However, there are people that could be very, very offended by that. Some Catholics may say that's not funny. Right. Um, or if you if you substituted a racial group or any other, um, that seems to target a specific group of people, you can get into trouble. So that joke, seemingly innocuous, could go down really badly, as you say, if you change the group it was targeted or if somebody takes offence, and that's the key to humour, what you and I might laugh at, I laughed at the crocodile joke, uh, somebody else might get upset with. And that's the trick at work because you think this is a fairly safe joke and somebody else, well, actually, that's really upset me or I'm having a really bad day and I'm going to be upset by that. Mm-hmm. So that's the trick. And, and I think then it comes back to one of my most compelling arguments about humour, context, context, context. Yeah. And in the workplace context, Again, you have to be careful now. We've we've changed. We've got more careful. We're more aware of our diversity and our diverse groups. So I wouldn't actually recommend telling that joke in a workplace, even though it seems quite a safe joke. Mm-hmm. Because there's probably no such thing as a safe joke. I'm not saying there should be no humour, but the thing that makes humour funny is, again, going back to the incongruity, the surprise, and there's always a little risk in it. Mm-hmm. The thing I found is that most people navigate those risks quite well at work because basically they know the people they work with. So they know which jokes are going to be okay and which jokes are not going to be okay. You have a chapter about the bright side of humor and one about the dark side of humor. And I thought it was interesting you chose those words. I've written an article um, that I put on my website called The Dark Side of Workplace Humor. So we chose the same words for that because I did see a lot of mistakes. But give us some examples of the bright side and the dark side. It's a, it's a good point, and you, you raised some good questions. Um, I never really wanted to go to the dark side. When I went out first years ago to start looking at humour, I thought it was all going to be smiles and laughter and, and pleasantness, and then I found the dark side. So I got taken to the dark side by what I found in my research. Mm-hmm. It was a big jump for me to have to go into that space and say, hey, humour can be dark. So let's start with the bright side. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> when it works well, Humour is incredibly inclusive and it's collegial and sharing laughter can make people feel great. It's especially useful in the workplace because when you work, you may not know your colleagues very well at start and a few gentle jokes may bring that collegiality out in you. Um, It's also a way of connecting with people you don't know so well. A few sort of little laughs together about some things that have happened can get you that that team sort of vibe happening, which is really good. So there is definitely this good bright side. A lot of people say, and this is another one of the theoretical threads to humour, humour gives us relief and release. And that that goes back to Sigmund Freud, who actually wrote a whole book on jokes, uh, called Jokes in the Unconscious. And he talks about that humour gives us this wonderful release that we let go through laughter or through the joke being resolved 
And that's really useful in a workplace full of tensions and all sorts of things going on. So definitely a bright side. And some workplaces seem to navigate very well to get a culture where you can enjoy some jokes, but nobody gets offended. I would say that's a real bright side scenario when this culture is going well. I saw this in one of my companies I went to where one day managers dressed up and put fairy wings on, both men and women put fairy wings on and ran around giving everyone ice creams and and a few treats. And there was a lot of laughter and the managers were making fools of themselves a little bit. And that worked quite well. And that was a real bright side day for me, just seeing the the happiness and everyone likes an ice cream, right? So um, that, that went really well. Dark side. Um, well, I've seen some some shockers, and they're in the book. There's 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 a poster um, about um, punching someone in the face. That's it seems to be endorsing domestic violence, um, and that was put up as a an inverted commas joke in one workplace. I've seen emails that got out of hand, where a thread and people wrote quite contentious comments, and then that email got outside the organisation and published in national um, publications, and that hurt the company. Yeah. Um, seen all sorts. Of, uh, one, one particular example I think we use in the book is a guy that jumped out of a wheelie bin. He, he hid in a wheelie bin as a joke, a practical joke, and jumped out at his manager. His manager was walking through the office with a visitor and was not happy. He thought it was silly, and also um, HR said to him, well, that manager has a heart condition. You could have oh. really harmed him. And that guy said to me, I will never do that again. And he had just thought it was a harmless prank. So that went horribly wrong for him and he ended up in the HR department in in trouble for his prank. So that's the dark side when things have gone wrong. And I've seen a lot worse than that. Some of them aren't even, I'm not even comfortable discussing. Um, But I've seen a lot of things where it's gone wrong or where somebody's just gone too far and overstepped the boundaries of propriety in their own workplace. Yeah, I will we'll probably get into this a little bit later in the show, but I do think that term that you use, going too far, it, it, there is a line, right? And the line is not a bright line. It kind of ebbs and flows depending on context and who you're talking to and maybe even the day. But I do see a tendency amongst human beings when they're working together sometimes to start pushing that line and the majority will start pushing it further and further, almost as a way of alienating the minority. And this is where we discover that that women, if there are only a few women in the office, will say, and then they started in with their jokes and teasing, and you know, there's a real resentment of it. So there's a way in which humor is used, certainly the dark side of humor is used not to be inclusive, but specific to alienate somebody. Yes, and that is something we need to acknowledge, and I think we acknowledge that in the book, that humor is not always done in a nice intention. Sometimes humor is mean, and it's done to poke fun at someone and hurt someone, and that can play out with different groups of people. Diversity may add to that, and when things are going wrong, perhaps in a culture, well, then some of that humor gets quite targeted and barbed, and that can be a gender thing as well, and Where I'm going with my Fun Turns Foul project is sometimes humour crosses that line and becomes sexual harassment. A a sexualised joke in the workplace can be experienced as a form of sexual harassment. And sometimes the joker will try and excuse that behaviour, saying it was just a joke, can't you take a joke? But we're saying that that's not really a suitable defence anymore. 
-hmm. One of the first um, academic papers I wrote about humour was called um, Crossing the Line and showing where the boundaries were. And that's where culture comes into organisational culture. Different cultures have different lines. So you, you mentioned the line is quite blurry. And nobody runs around with a piece of string saying the line is here. And it's something you have to work out inside your own workplace. What's appropriate? What's not appropriate? A very professional firm, and I've been inside law firms, their boundary is much, much uh, tighter on what they, they feel that they can allow in their professional organisation. A small company, when everyone knows each other quite well, uh, the boundary can be a bit looser. Though, that being said, sometimes people still do cross that line and go too far and upset someone. So it's it's really quite tricky, which is really why we wrote the book, because it can be really hard to navigate those boundaries around humour because people are scared of being called a spoil sport if they complain. Mm-hmm. But some humour can get very nasty as well. So it's, it's a tricky place. I think I might be more on the uptight side, even though I really enjoy humor and and really enjoyed using it in the workplace. I was kind of shocked at some of the things that you reported in the book. And one of them uh, has to do with, it was sort of a weird situation. Like the company was encouraging employees to quote unquote, woo other employees, like to have a week where they would, I guess, be especially nice to them. But one jokester thought it would be really funny then for the person he was wooing to leave her a note and to leave her a condom that looked as though it had been used. So mayonnaise or some substance was put inside it. I was really shocked, I have to confess. I mean, to me, this is so clearly over the line. But I wonder... I wonder if we're especially sensitive about this kind of thing in California. I, I mean, your book is quite recent. It's not as though, oh, yeah, we did all these kinds of jokes in the 50s, but now we can't in the PC, you know, 2019, 2020. But I wondered if it was, like you say, kind of a cultural thing, but we're especially sensitive in California. I don't know. What do you think? I don't think you are. Um, that was considered quite a shocking example. Now, that wasn't from my own personal research. That example, I think think we say in the book came from um, a newspaper story so it had been reported in the newspaper here in New Zealand it happened on a ski field and they had started this woo week and in the best of sort of interest to to just have a little bit of fun and somebody crossed the line so that was considered um, quite a shocking prank and and disciplinary action was taken and it was reported in the newspaper so that really blew up badly and it reflected badly on the company that had really started something they thought was going to be innocuous but an employee took it too far and that could definitely um, be considered a form of sexual harassment of the woman who received that so you I don't think you're overly sensitive I think certainly in the western world and and um this certainly wouldn't happen I I don't think in an eastern context where I've done some research as well Certainly, I don't think you're being particularly precious about this. I think most places would say that. <laughs> yeah, I would worry that that would be construed as sexual harassment on a casual basis, perhaps not legally, you know, under a legal lens, but casually that it would be. Yeah, well, it's going down that that street, certainly because of the connotations of, of what was left for her. So, um, mm-hmm. And I think sexual harassment, you've got to, to have maybe several incidents that build up to build a case legally a one-off example would the perpetrator will get some sort of discipline reaction but I'm not sure that that would constitute a sexual harassment case on its own yeah I agree 
So you use the word, or other people that you spoke with would sometimes use the word professional to describe behavior that was acceptable and appropriate, and then some joking and some humor would be considered unprofessional. And I was intrigued by that because that's a word that we use here a lot as this kind of code for things that are okay. Those things are professional and things that aren't okay are considered unprofessional. So in combination with that, this idea that you're professional if you don't exhibit a sense of humor and you're unprofessional if you do. It's not that black and white, but they kind of go along together. And then you also talk in your research about people's practice of humor declining as they rise in the management rank. So as you become apparently more and more professional, then you engage less and less in humor. I wondered what you think drives all that. Professional is a good word, isn't it? It it is a code word for, um, hey, that's not allowed here. And I think it's used because it's really hard to complain about humor or to say there's too much humor or you're you're laughing too much. <laughs> so we encode it with that word professional. We have to be seen to be professional. Now, all of my research has been done in white collar organizations. So that standard of professionalism is held up very highly. And particularly in some of the banking institutions I've been in and law firms, it's very important to hold that professional image um, because it comes down to the company's brand and and what they're about. Mm -hmm. That's one part of that. Your other part, you talk about managers, and I talk to a lot of managers, and it's not that they don't engage in humour as they rise through the ranks, but they don't initiate it. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't work extremely well to be quite a high-level manager and be the person cracking all the jokes. And again, because it's not seen as professional. And people who weren't managers said to me, oh, I don't want my manager cracking a whole lot of jokes. I want my manager to be professional and show me how things are done. So what I found in the research is that more of the jokes were created by people who weren't in top management roles. Now, at the same time, and this is not a black and white thing, at the same time, sometimes people have risen to a management position, think they can get away with anything. So they are cracking jokes, and a bit unwisely, in in my opinion, because there's some effects of power going on. If you are a manager cracking jokes, and people are laughing, you're going to think, by golly, I'm funny, but not really. (laughs) Because people are laughing for a whole lot of reasons, because everyone else is laughing. Laughter is contagious. It's hard to stand there and be the not laugher. They're laughing because you're the boss and they feel like they have to laugh. Mm -hmm. So I've seen some things go quite wrong for managers that have underestimated some of the dynamics that play with humor. Mm -hmm. So it is very tied up with professionalism. And I did find in a lot of my organizations a particular character called the Joker and what I called the joker, who was good at humor, but that tended to drop away if they got into higher level positions. Some of them were managers, but not top level managers, perhaps. And some of them, they were very skilled at humor. But as they rose up, they probably dialed it back in again, in the interests of the professionalism you talked about. Yeah, I guess. And I suppose the risks maybe get higher as you have a bigger audience, when you're higher in the ranks, you're speaking to more people. So there's more likelihood that your joke is going to go wrong. 
Certainly. And managers definitely said that to me. I don't want to be making the jokes because this is my team. It's important that I'm respected. And if my joke goes badly, either I'm going to look a fool or I'm going to upset someone in my team. And that upset could even be magnified um, with that power dynamic that's that's in manager-employee relations. Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost a, a trade-off between risk and benefit. And yeah, you you want your team to feel good, but the risks of of uh, having a joke go awry might be too great as as the stakes rise. Absolutely. You talk about four different uh, functions or dynamics of humor. So incongruity we talked about, but also superiority slash aggression, which I think is very interesting. Tension release, which we probably intuitively understand, and then sociability. Can you talk about those, how those work or don't work in the workplace? Yeah, well, incongruity is, is the most common, and that's just when something surprising happens. Um, I've seen somebody slam the phone down from a phone call and swear loudly, and you're not really supposed to swear in your office, in your open plan office, and everyone around them laughs because that's quite surprising when somebody swears, and they also protect them a little bit. But the surprise of somebody using a, a profanity sometimes is on incongruity, but at the same time, there's a relief and release there. People have mm-hmm. said, oh, they're swearing, but that laughter that's shared maybe from the people around them gives everybody a bit of a release, including the person who maybe maybe did the swearing. So those effects, those theoretical underpinnings of humour often overlap. You can get more than one of them at the same time. So there might be some incongruity going, there might be some relief and release going on. Superiority is an interesting one because that plays into some of the dark side we talked about because superiority is when we laugh at somebody who something funny is going, that we find funny is going on because in that moment we feel a bit superior to them. So that explains maybe something like slapstick humor when we watch some goofballs running around a screen, getting into trouble, losing their car or whatever, um, and we feel a bit superior to them because we're not going to do those silly things. It explains the old gag, somebody slips on a banana skin, and we laugh at that because in that moment we feel a bit superior because they've splattered onto the floor and we're sitting watching them. The other side is that we don't laugh as if the person gets seriously hurt, but if we know they're not hurt, it's just a bit undignified out of a sense of superiority, we might laugh at them. It's not a very nice theory of humor, but it is one of them. Well, it's, so there's, there's definitely something going on there. When I lived in France as a teenager, I used to go to the puppet show in the Luxembourg Gardens. <laughs> and basically, it's just marionettes whacking each other on the head with sticks. And the kids would just laugh and laugh and fall over with peals of laughter at these things getting whacked on the head. And and I remember thinking, why is this so funny? <laughs> and that's exactly, that's that superiority. These puppets are being silly and somebody's getting hurt, but they know, the kids know, no one's really getting harmed here. It's, it's a show, it's a joke. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a really good example of that superiority um, coming out to play there. And the fourth one we talked about was sociability. So just when we're humour is part of our social communication suite that, you know, little jokes or little asides or smiles and things that we use to connect with our people in the workplace and make everything sort of smooth itself out. You also talk about alcohol 
in the book. And thank you for bringing that up because in my experience, that was often, it would start out as a positive thing, right? That it was sort of a social lubricant. And so people could be funnier and people who didn't always crack up then were more relaxed and and they would join in the laughter and everyone was more relaxed and uh, fun. And then as you pursue that alcohol line up further and further, suddenly there's this huge drop off. And I would see that things get suddenly very unfunny and lines are crossed and people's feelings are hurt. And it's just often was, would turn into a really, really bad situation. So when you talk about managing humor, what advice do you give to people about alcohol? Be very careful because, of course, alcohol changes the whole context when alcohol's there, yet you're still in the workplace. So uh, a workplace event, drinks after work, uh, somewhere where you all go for an event or a party and alcohol is provided, you're still officially in a workplace with work people and you're going to have to face them on Monday. But, of course, alcohol changes people's behavior. Um, inhibitions get lost and jokes that might not be said in the office place you've taken it out of the office then might come out and that's when you've got that bigger chance for offense and things to go wrong so it's again the lines get even more blurry when alcohol enters the frame or you're at a workplace event and sometimes that so-called humor goes further than it would in the nine-to-five office office place so that is a place where I say tread very carefully. And I have suggested to managers and workplaces who want to still have some fun and have an event, but I've suggested that you always have a couple of minders, perhaps, people who are not drinking and keeping an eye on things, saying, oh, that person over there is getting a bit loose with some of their jokes. Maybe we'll just organise a, a taxi cab for that person to go home or suggest that they, they might want to um, leave or stop drinking. So I think it's always good when alcohol is part becomes part of the workplace to have some people who are not indulging in alcohol that can keep a little bit an eye on things and and watch out for stuff and cut it off before it happens, before it becomes an outrage, before somebody starts taking litigation or or visiting HR for a big complaint. It's just that being a bit savvy about what might happen in an alcohol event and plenty of managers I've talked to in big corporations are now doing that sort of thing where they have a couple of people just keeping an eye on the whole situation. Oh, I think that's such great advice to have a couple of sober people there who still have their wits about them and can (laughs) see when things start to turn dark and yeah, the dynamic starts to shift. I think that's really smart. That, That makes a lot of sense. So one of the things I love about humor, and we're going to get into the weeds here a little bit, but you you do take this on in the book, is that it can be very useful as a way of bringing up topics safely that you couldn't bring up if you were going to do it without humor. And so one of the one of the tricks that I like to use when I was working was to create a top ten reasons that someone is leaving. And mm. and when I constructed those, because it's all under the guise of fun, I could uh, address some things 
that in fact probably did contribute to the, why the person was leaving, but in a way that was still lighthearted, but kind of let, let us all as a group kind of laugh about something that was a problem, right? That was a challenge. And just the way that you would word it would allow it to be kind of acceptable. But you could, you know, have the group acknowledge, yeah, this thing happened, that software was terrible, or that manager was awful, or who knows, you know, the, the challenges that people have and why, why they leave. And the, one of the ones that you tell is the story of Zach. And I wonder if, if you remember that story well enough to tell it. I do. And I, w- I was there when that one happened. And Zach was what I would call a joker, really good at, at humor. And we were in the most uncomfortable meeting in this company. And the, the CEO was taking everyone to task about their sales figures. He was going around the room and saying, what did you forecast? What did you achieve? And really calling people out and to task. And it got to Zach. And he said, what did you forecast? And Zach told his forecast figure and this is what you achieved and um, Zach tried to justify this in a, in a professional way saying well this happened and this happened and the mm. CEO cut him down and said what did you forecast what did you achieve <laughs> and so Zach just came right back at him and said okay next time I'll forecast zero because I can achieve that and the room fell apart so it was <laughs> super, super funny but by golly, it was brave, and he took that CEO on, but he was the guy who was known for the humor. He cracked the funny jokes in meetings, so everyone accepted it. Everyone laughed, I think, out of relief and release, firstly, and also to protect Zach a little bit because he it really was a challenge in there, mm-hmm. and the best thing of all was the CEO laughed too with yeah. everyone he would have been it would have been difficult for him not to to be fair because the room had erupted and he just grinned and moved on and got off that topic and moved on and there was a challenge in there Zach was saying okay yes our sales aren't great but this calling out is quite tough and this is another way I could go I could do a rotten forecast and 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 so it was definitely a pushback in that little joke yeah. he, he did it well and he delivered it well and he got away with it and I'm sitting there with my pen as a researcher thinking this is gold yeah right because that was real communication that took place there that would be very especially in that particular situation would have been very hard for the CEO to hear that your system is goofed up buddy because we're making the forecasts but it, I I thought it was brilliant yeah and he was also being told back off you know this is really intense and and this public shaming is harsh so I'm gonna <laughs> push back a little bit but it was great and that's the great thing that humor can do that it can push back a little bit and as um, a subordinate um, employee in that situation humor was his best weapon because mm-hmm. by couching it in in joke work that's that's Freud's um, uh, phrase joke work by putting it into joke work he threw it out there it was really hard for the CEO to tell him off about that um, and, and Freud also said humor lets us say, the unsayable. Mm. And that's what everyone's thinking. Hey, if we if we fudge our forecasts, then we won't get into trouble. And he said it blatantly, but he, he wrapped it into humor and it, it worked beautifully. Yeah, that's that's really great. You made some observations in the book about gender 
gendered responses to humor, that men and women treat humor differently. And so what did you observe? Well, there's some good gendered research out there saying that men and women tend to have slightly different humor styles and ways of doing humor. They're both equally as funny. They just go about it in different ways. And I'll bring this back to the role I talked about, the joker. So I went into every organization I've been into, I try and identify that joker. Firstly, from my observations. And secondly, I ask everybody, who's the joker? (laughs) Everybody identifies the same one or two people, including the joker themselves. And what I did find find was a very gendered effect in there that usually those jokers were male. Uh, I did come across a couple of female jokers, but not as many. So what I've taken from this is that men will be identified more as the joker because their humor styles are more performative. They perform it in a different way. It's a little bit maybe louder. It's a little bit more physical sometimes where women's humor can often be shared more quietly with a smaller group where the the male jokers I saw would perhaps perform their humor in front of the whole room so that everyone heard. They had bigger voices, so they were more able to do that. Not entirely. Again, it's it's can be blurry. I, I did see some women who did some very funny things quite loudly. But if I'm generalizing a little bit here, I don't really like to generalize, but um, that was that male-female effect and, and different humor styles were apparent in the places I've been. Yeah, I think it's such a cliche for us, and certainly my work that I've done talking to women working in male-dominated environments, they often do complain about teasing and starting up with the jokes and, you know, kind of eye-rolling and not finding it funny. And on one hand, I feel as though it just feeds into the stereotype that women don't have a sense of humor. But on the other hand, you know, as we talked about earlier, I do think sometimes what they're picking up on is that the humor is not intended for them. It's intended sort of at them, right? To to objectify them or to alienate them. So talk about how that fits into the structure as, as you perceive humor. Well, that, that does happen in groups, but that's not just a gender effect. That can be a race effect. It can be an age effect. It can be all of the different dimensions of diversity. If you get a group of people who are maybe um, a little homogenous and then you get a few people who don't quite fit in with that group, then you'll see that effect on lots of different dimensions. I've also seen the effect work the other way, where I've talked to men who've been in a very women or female-dominated organisation and felt that they were the um, subject of the humour and they were targeted. Most of them sort of laughed and said they enjoyed it. That may be bravado, I'm not sure, but I have talked to men where they felt that the women were teasing them constantly. So I do think that that effect can just be when a group of like-minded people are together and other people don't fit that group as well, they may become the target to a certain extent. Yeah, that's a very good point. And I've certainly heard that from from men also and even observed it where somehow a group of women start feeling pretty free to start picking on a solitary guy in kind of a sexual way, asking about his love life or commenting on his appearance. And yeah, there's an edge to it that's quite unpleasant. As I'm thinking about this, it happens 
in all kinds of different ways, right? Like I think that the manufacturing guys used to make fun of us in administration. You know, I, I think that this cuts all kinds of different ways that the hourly employees will make fun of managers. You know, that there's that, yeah, it's, it's a bonding experience for the group, but for the people who are outside, it's, it's yeah, the accountants will make fun of the marketing people and Mm -hmm. they'll make fun of the, uh, the sales department. And there are so many dimensions in the workplace that people can do this along that it, it can be never ending just about. Well, you talked in the book, which I thought was also really helpful, about some research that had been done about the most effective way to respond to a comment that you perceive as being offensive. First, we should comment that if if you are the person who's made a comment and then you have to follow it up by saying, oh, I was just joking, your comment failed, your joke failed. But if you're on the receiving end of an offensive comment, and of course, you don't want to be the person who says who appears to be a spoil sport and all that. But you did look into some effective ways of responding. So why don't we share those with the listeners? Yeah, um, I'm a very great believer in being open. If you can, in the moment saying, I don't appreciate that comment, but that does take a lot of bravery. And it depends, again, on the context and scene. I wouldn't advise doing that in an alcohol event where people might that might escalate and get really aggressive but if it's just in the office and you can say hey I didn't enjoy that comment and you're brave enough to do that that's that's a nice open way to do it if you can't do that you may talk to a manager just quietly and take it take it non-public and as managers and HR managers have to deal with this you know in a discreet way too and maybe call out the joker and say hey can we have a talk somebody's been a bit upset by your humor and, and usually you'll find then the joker gets upset because they didn't intend it. You never know in humor what someone's intention is. Is no. the intention behind this to harm or is it just genuine? They're a little naive and they didn't realize the full implications because sometimes humor is done really sharply in the moment, banter, that quick response, boom, and you don't stop and think through those implications. Right. And then it can go wrong. So, the great unknown in humor, um, and I talk about this in some of my research work, is we cannot know intention. Uh, people can retrospectively say, hey, I didn't mean to offend here. I was just doing this. And that's where the just joking phrase comes from. But it doesn't cut it if it really is getting nasty and it's continual and you're doing it a lot. Um, but sometimes just that one quick barb and the best thing to do is if you're the person who has made the comment that's upset someone is just go straight up and apologize. Straight up and say, I'm sorry. Yeah. Don't justify it. Don't make another joke for goodness sake. Just jolly well apologize. Get in there and do it quickly and do it genuinely. If it escalates beyond that, well, then you're dealing with your HR department and you've got a major issue on your hands. So I'm I'm about, oh gosh, have I upset you? Hey, I'm really sorry. I didn't I didn't think that remark through. I did it off the cuff and quite quickly. Or if it is something that is happening a lot, well then maybe you need to get a manager involved and in saying, hey, this person is making sexual jokes constantly. I don't appreciate it. We need to, we need to sort this out. So it it depends. It's very um situation specific and each each case may have different set of factors leading up to it. I think that's great, though, 
to start out by being as honest as you can. I think honesty on one side can encourage honesty on the other. And a lot of times people then can bridge that gap just between themselves without involving HR and the managers, which sometimes adds a whole level of complexity. That's a good point. And what I've found for the most part is that is exactly what happens. People navigate it themselves. Not often is HR called in to manage humor, but that can be changing a bit with modern workplaces and more diversity and more opportunities for people to get hurt. But usually people are pretty good about, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. I may have stepped over the line. They do it really well. I'm, I'm quite surprised there aren't more problems, to be honest. Mm-hmm. As many of the things you described in your book, I, I thought, wow, <laughs> it's interesting that people are carrying humor to this level, that, that they're, but it, it, it did get pretty rough in the places yeah. that I work too. And I, you know, it's, it, it's, I'm so glad that you have tackled this topic because I think it's often surprising to people when they enter the workforce to discover just how much is flying around the room. <laughs> Thank you. And it is um, a complex topic. You've, you've, you've outlined that really well, that it's really tricky. And till now, there's not a lot of help or research with it. And one of the reasons we wrote this book is I was constantly getting particularly HR managers saying, how do we manage this thing? How do we manage it sensitively and well without shutting down humor? We know that humor works well in the workplace and helps people, but how do we manage it so that there's not offense, but we don't shut it down? And it's it's really complicated. So I think there's lots of room for lots more research and work of this nature. Well, I'm going to tackle another one here that I've been thinking about since I read your book, and that is this poster you mentioned earlier that uh, shows a man having apparently punched a woman. So she's shown in the image. I I haven't seen it, so I'm picturing this in my mind as kind of cowering in the corner. And you, as the viewer of the poster, are standing behind this big aggressive man. And the poster is labeled, uh, punch her in the face to show her you're right. And this was posted in a kitchen. And so I want to... dig into this a little bit because there are a couple of things going on here that kind of give me the creeps. That's an American expression. I hope, I hope yeah. that translates. We have the same one. <laughs> okay. So ostensibly someone could object to the posters as super sexist and somebody else says, no, you see, if you uh, interpret these words with your most intellectual capabilities, you'll see that this is a joke on the man, right? Of course, that it doesn't make any sense to punch somebody to show her that you're right. But there's something to me about the image that makes that explanation lose a lot of weight, frankly. I, I don't know. What do you think? Well, it is a shocking poster. It's actually um, circulated on the internet and it's pretty easily easily accessed. Um, it was sent to one of the companies where I was working and they printed it out and put it in the kitchen. Now, first of all, context, this place was extreme. So this would be the most extreme company I ever work, worked inside. Uh, their humor was extreme. There was a lot of stuff in here that was really, you would not see in more professional firms. And they made it a feature of their culture. They were very unusual. They were known for it. They were proud of it. 
And so a poster like this to them was gold because it was so shocking, mm-hmm. such a shocking thing to display, and that's why they thought it was funny. I went around every person in that organization and said, tell, tell me about the poster, including the women. There weren't many women in that organization, I might add. There were only, only three in the organization. It was a small company as well. Um, and they said, oh, it's just, everyone said, oh, it's just a joke, just the boys being silly. Um, they laughed it off. Um, I see. So they, yeah, I talked to everybody. And to the men that had put it up, they didn't want to discuss it. They just put it up because it was outrageous. And they liked to shock, and they liked to shock through their humour. I never encountered another place like this, I'm quite happy to say. Um, <laughs> and it was quite an extreme time when I was in there because of the things that went on. This was just one of many more extreme forms of humor. But I have to commend them for allowing me to see them in in reality and in, in their full glory of what they actually did on a daily basis. And this is genuinely what they did. It was a small company. It was owner-operated. They weren't going to get into trouble for it probably. And the CEO said if they don't like it, they can leave. I see. Um, and that's pretty much – some people did leave – they said, I need to go and work somewhere more professional. So it was a very extreme example. I doubt I'll come across that again. And that one was a few years ago. So um, that company has since actually been sold and changed dramatically. So that culture doesn't operate anymore. Um, people probably quite relieved to hear that. But <laughs> at the time, that was what was going on. And I couldn't quite believe um, what I was seeing while I was there. Um, so there are people who suggested to me, maybe you don't talk about this stuff. And I thought, well, no, because if it happens in one small company, maybe it happens in others. Um, oh, I think so. I think your book is really important to really show what is really out there. Because I think in our, you know, if we cover that kind of thing up, then we're really doing a disservice to junior employees who might walk into a situation like that and feel very unprepared. And there is this kind of macho humor out there. It really does exist. I see it a lot in the Silicon Valley kind of humor, you know, that's meant to shock. And so I think it's important to talk about. It's real. Yep. And that was exactly the type of organization it was. It was a technological firm. It was very male dominated they saw themselves as cowboys they saw themselves as shocking they played that image up they never had any trouble recruiting employees everybody wanted to work for them because they were seen (laughs) as quite out there so some interesting dynamics they were quite successful and they were very good at what they did Uh, and they almost bolstered a small firm's image by having such an outrageous culture so Mm -hmm. it worked for them I'm not saying that many people could survive it or want to work in that but the ones that did loved being there so it was a different form of culture and I'm not a censor so I went out there and just reported back on it and maybe from that there are some lessons uh, if you find yourself in this sort of culture well you've got to stop and ask some questions about is this for you what does it mean all those sorts of things. So certainly I couldn't work in that kind of culture. Um, I struggled even being there as a researcher for a while. But, <laughs> but then right. there's a part of me saying this is also research gold. Uh-huh, right. Yeah, no, very important to to bring that out. So you're continuing to study humor, obviously. And as my last question, I wanted to ask you, what, what, are, you, what are you finding? What are you learning now? 
Well, I guess I've been responding to some things locally in New Zealand that we've seen happen in companies. And then there's the hashtag MeToo movement. You know, it's global and people are looking very firmly at uh, items like sexual harassment and where that comes from and how that plays out. So that's an interesting area. I am looking at some gendered effects of humour and what that might mean. For people at work. So I've, I've stepped into that area. I'm also looking a little at bullying through humour because sometimes, again, it can be targeted towards one or two people too often and that can become a form of bullying. So all those sort of contemporary workplace effects that we try and keep out of our workplaces, humour might have a role to play in those. So I'm specifically targeting those and um, seeing what I can do to, to help in those areas that that is one of my my focus. I'm also still looking at what you can do for workplace events. A lot of people have come to me and said, we're really grappling with this. We want to create some lovely events for our staff, but we're scared. We're scared of getting into trouble. So I'm looking at, as, as I mentioned my earlier project, when fun turns foul, trying to help people not let their fun turn foul, try to have some safe practices that if you're going to have an event and maybe have some alcohol, what can we do to make sure that this isn't doesn't become tomorrow's headline and that we don't lose staff over it? So, so and that's the area I'm working at the moment. It's it's interesting. Um, again, it's not entirely dark side because a lot of people do a lot of really good things and clever things that that keep um, the workplace quite harmonious. And I'm interested in all of those effects, both the dark and the bright side of what's going on out there. Yeah, that sounds really helpful. I hear people say, oh, you know, in this PC environment, we can't have any fun anymore and no jokes. And it does sometimes seem as though the advice that we get is so anti-humor. So I'm glad you're trying to strike a balance there. Yes. Before I let you go, I wanted to ask if you wanted to share your contact information or how the listeners can follow your work or anything you'd like to share with them. Yes, so um, I have a profile on the University of Auckland webpage. You can just look up Barbara Plester. I'm in the Department of Management and International Business. My email is advertised um, there, though I'm happy to to share that now. It's b.plester at auckland.ac.nz. The AC um, denotes academic in New Zealand um, domain names. And um, I'm happy to receive interesting emails and people who are interested in humour, people who are looking for the book. If people are interested in the book, it's available at Springer. We we offer both a a physical printed copy of that book with all the pictures and posters and things in, and Springer also offer it as an e-book and even on a chapter-by-chapter basis, um, such as the way we can buy things these days, it's pretty marvellous. It's also available on the obvious platforms like Amazon and Book Depository as well if people are interested in looking at that. But I'm always interested in people's comments, people's stories. I get people sharing a lot of stories. So if anyone wants to email me um, and share a story, I'm always open to hearing hearing their um, experiences from work. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you again so much for the work that you're doing and for being on the show. Thank you, Jennifer. It's been lovely talking to you, and I think you've asked me some great questions today. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. In keeping with the new year, we'll be changing our format somewhat as the show has evolved. 
We'll continue to address work-related problems, but in our second year, we'll be going beyond just an advice show to talk about work trends, labor laws, economics, interesting companies, as well as pranks, bad bosses, and more screw-ups at work. If you have a question about a work-related issue or a comment about the show, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website discreetguide.com. That's D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T. And at that website, you can also sign up for The Pergola, a digital publication that comes out every other month, and get information about training programs, books, consulting sessions, articles, jokes, and resources, all for us to work better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces. And thanks for listening. New shows will be available every Tuesday and sometimes Friday. Tune in so you can hear more about trouble at work.